0: Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack DeRora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two.
1: You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day. With social justice issues dominating our culture, our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference?
0: And now it's not just us. Today, we have Mark Godsey with us to discuss why innocent people are wrongfully convicted of serious crimes in Ohio. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Jack you uh, sat in on the uh, argument I had a few weeks ago in the Supreme Court my client Marty Hatton claims that he's innocent of uh, rape that he was convicted of uh, about 25 years ago and this is the first uh, case that um, I've had of course it's been a couple of years now where I start to understand what a problem we have in Ohio and probably across the country of people being wrongfully convicted
1: first of all I uh... I thought you did a great job in your presentation before the court, but of course, I wasn't surprised to see you do do a great job. But what struck me about the case was this argument that I heard that really just didn't make sense. It was trying to defend a bad set of facts. And the other thing that struck me is, I think it's a quote from a deceased Justice Scalia who said something to the effect of you know, there's no guarantee in the Constitution to the right decision. You only have a guarantee to some procedural process. And while I guess intellectually that makes sense, in terms of where we stand as a nation, that's a pretty harsh statement to stomach. Well, what struck me
0: in cases like this, and of course, Mark uh, has a number of these cases, and and I hope he can address this, is the the process or the procedure to even get back before a court to make a substantive argument. Uh, In Marty Hatton's case, uh, he discovered a memo written in 2008. He didn't discover it until 2018, and that was a foot in the door to argue to the court that there was new evidence to consider. Of course, you have to go back to the original trial judge who uh, oftentimes is still the same person who tried the case, and oftentimes you're facing the same prosecutor. And um, our guest today wrote a book about that. Um, Mark, you had uh, talked in your book about blind denial, and I think I was facing that in Mr. Hatton's case. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by blind denial?
2: Yeah. Well, um, so just to back up a minute, before doing this work, I was a prosecutor. And um, and then I, I was in federal court in New York, Southern District of New York, and came back and started doing these innocence cases in Ohio courts with elected judges, um, many of whom or most of whom were former prosecutors. And it was sort of culture shock for me, um, seeing how there were in many ways I would call, I would say no separation of powers, that the, the judicial branch, the judge, and the executive branch, the prosecutor, seemed to just work in in lockstep. Um, And we would have these cases, and we continue to have them today, but the the first cases we had, you know, like Clarence Elkins, for example, out of Summit County, the the evidence is absolutely clear, he's innocent. And I'm standing in court and the prosecutor shows up and opposes our motion to free him with just these crazy arguments. Um, And I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, is this candid camera, am I getting punked? (laughs) You know, like, is this is this a big joke? How do I keep a straight face? It's like, you know, in that case, it was an old woman who had been raped and murdered. And then her her granddaughter had heard the, the noise and come out of her bedroom. And that, that girl was also attacked. Sadly, uh, she survived. But we found male DNA on both of the victims, the vaginal cavity and in the little girl's underwear. And it was the same man. And it wasn't Clarence Elkins. Now, we had the DNA profile of this man, but we didn't know his name, but clearly that's the attacker. There's nobody else who's putting their DNA on, on the girl's underwear and inside the grandmother's vaginal cavity on that night, except for the perpetrator. And when it didn't match Clarence Elkins, um, that meant he was innocent. So we get to court and the, the the prosecutors are saying things like this. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the grandmother that morning before she was murdered, she must have had some sort of aggressive handshaking with a man. Um, and then she masturbated and the, the, the male DNA rubbed off inside her vaginal cavity. And also she was helping the girl with her underwear, putting her going to the bathroom. So this male DNA from a handshake, you know, spread all over these items. And, and I'm just sitting here thinking like it's like a prosecutor standing up and saying, you know, the moon is made of cheese. It was ridiculous. Um, and, you know, the judge went along with it. We we ultimately exonerated Clarence. We were able to match the DNA to the true perpetrator, Earl man who's now in prison. But it was just case after case where I'm just sitting there like these guys have so much self-interest. They don't want to admit a mistake. Um, You know, in that case, the prosecutor had the article from when he convicted Clarence Elkins framed on his wall. You know, so this was his trophy. So you come back eight years later and you go, you got an innocent man in prison. And the human mind has infinite capacities to convince itself of whatever facts are in your own best interest. And I saw courts do that in that case and case after case after that.
1: You know, what struck me from your book, Mark, was, um, well, there are a lot of things that struck me in the book. And let me say as a side note, while I thought it was really interesting, it was one of the most depressing reads I've gone through in a while because, well, Gonzo and I are familiar with the shortcomings of the court system, the criminal justice system. When you read two to 300 pages of it in a row, it's yeah. just really, it's just almost too much. But what struck me was it's really a matter of the human um, condition that is the heart of the problem. We have ego. We don't want to believe that we could have made a mistake. We want to justify this system. We can't possibly fathom that the system is wrong. It's it's just a real core um, inner block that prevents a logical and compassionate approach
2: to the law. It's it's the human condition. Yeah, you said it well. I mean, but I think you're right. So the, the basic thesis of the book is that um, it's not that people are acting in an evil way when they're engaging in conduct like that. They're acting like humans. However, and I talk about this in the last chapter, um, you can have a culture that fights that. You know, you can create a culture that is, is I mean, for example, in the in the private sector, um, they've learned that when people go down rabbit holes and they have crazy ideas, and they won't let go of their ego. It costs the company millions of dollars. So if some executive gets uh, so some harebrained idea that they're going to expand to the American Southwest and they want to spend $5 billion opening up stores there. And they're convinced that this is absolutely the right answer. Um, you know, the company's going to have focus groups. They're going to engage in devil's advocacy. They're going to do all sorts of stuff before they allow that money to be spent. Um, the problem is, and so the, the, you know, the private market creates these, cultural incentives and these checks to make sure that people aren't going down rabbit holes with their crazy ego ideas. Um, and the, the problem is we don't do that in the criminal justice system because prosecutors and judges and everybody else have unchecked power. It's just not part of the culture. But we've seen in places where prosecutors have come in and they've tried to create that culture, if they have an affirmative effort to do that, it actually does work.
1: You
0: know, Mark, I, you were a prosecutor in, um, in New York, as I recall. And yeah. did you ever have to uh, defend convictions? And do you look back on on some of that and think, um, you know, maybe I was engaging in some of the same kind of blind denial that I uh, talk about in my book?
2: Hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I give, I give lots of different examples about it. I mean, um, I don't have a case where somebody came out later and said, I'm innocent. I was wrongfully convicted. But like in chapter seven, for example, I give um, an example of a case where I mean, the the reality is, in many cases, we just don't know what happened. And the prosecutor doesn't know either. And they stand up there and they con- concoct a theory and they act like they know what it is. And they say it very persuasively, but it's just a theory and they're just making it up. Um, and they could be wrong. And then, but, but once the, pro- the jury comes back and, and agrees with that theory and says guilty, we act like it's this like, you know, message from God that can't be challenged. And it's just made up. So, you know, I, I gave an example where, it's too long and complicated to go into the, the example, but um, you know, every time a piece of possible innocence came in, I would, I would be, and there was one came in right before trial started. I was like, oh God. And it wasn't like my reaction is, oh, this guy's innocent. Maybe I should drop the charges. My reaction was, oh, how am I gonna explain this? Right? Was the starting point is always, he's clearly guilty. So how am I gonna explain this? And then finally a light bulb went off like the day before trial. Oh, here's a great explanation. Here's how I can explain this evidence. I ran it by my friends, the former prosecutors in my hallway. And they're all like, yeah, great. You know, and I went and presented it to the jury. And the jury believed my theory of, of my spin on the facts. And they convicted them. But I, you know, I step back now later. I have no idea. And that's the truth of, of, in many cases. I mean, the defense has a theory. The prosecution has a theory. Nobody was actually there. Nobody knows what actually happened. But we act like we do. And, you know, human beings are actually really, really bad as a species of going back and trying to figure out after the fact what happened by investigation, because we're incredibly biased. We have confirmation bias, we have tunnel vision, um, our egos get involved. I mean, we're, we pretend like that. You know, these detectives and people who are supposed to figure out what happened have this full pra- proof way of getting at the truth. And we all believe that collectively as a society, but we're actually really, really bad creatures at reconstructing the past. You know, part of the problem, and this
1: speaks to what you went through with the case that you just described, you you know, we'd like to think that the court system is a vehicle for ascertaining the truth, but as I once heard a, a law school professor say, the trial court system is actually a battle mode, one side opposing the other, and we lose sight of what we're really trying to do. And it really becomes a matter of trying to win as opposed to getting the right result, and. Regrettably, I would imagine Gonzo and I are subject to that in our practice as civil lawyers. You know, it's how do you win, not necessarily what's the right result.
2: It doesn't bother me as much. That makes sense in the civil context, right? Because you're just talking about money and um, both sides, you know, when money's involved, they can usually get good lawyers. Um, In the criminal context, you know, the theory behind the adversarial system is that both sides are fighting as hard as they can and putting great pressure. And so you the truth is somewhere in the middle and that equal fight helps find that truth in the middle. Um, The reality is, you know, that may work in the civil system, but it doesn't work in the criminal system because the state has basically infinite resources. Um, Most uh, defendants have limited resources and public defenders are understaffed and underpaid and they don't have money for all the bells and whistles. They don't have a crime lab at their disposal. They don't have investigators who can pound the pavement and go out and interview every witness. Um, and we all start off with biases. So the, the everybody assumes the guy's guilty, right? So when I was a prosecutor, there was a defense attorney that would always start off his opening statement by introducing himself and saying, you know, um, you guys came in here and he's talking to the jury and you looked around and you saw some guy up there with a robe on the bench and he thought to yourself, that's the judge. And then you looked around and you saw, um, a table that had, you know, a, a, somebody in a suit and a cop next to him. And you thought that's the prosecutor and that's the investigating detective. And then you looked over at me in a suit and you looked at the guy next to me and you said, that's the defense attorney and that's the guy who did it. <laughs> right. And the jury would and he would go, didn't you, didn't you? And they would start laughing. He'd go, because you started off assuming he did it. And that would be his entree to explaining the presumption of innocence. And he would always say, gotcha, didn't I? And they would laugh because they everybody does that. And I think that just illustrates um it's not an even playing field there's the, the resources aren't equal it's not an even fight it's tug of war where one side has a lot more weight and they can just pull that center of truth to their side uh besides the fact that we all start off with our our, our finger on the weight of the prosecution including the jurors
0: when i was in law school i don't know if i told you this story jack um, i clerked for mike miller who was the county prosecutor in franklin county for a summer and um I remember uh, watching a rape trial where one of the younger prosecutors was um was trying a guy for raping a four or five-year-old it was just a sad case but when it was over and he got his conviction he came back and sat down with the clerks and he said something that always stuck with me and probably sent me to the civil side of the practice which was god i hope he did that because this guy went away for i don't know 35 years and it was hard to convict uh you know based on uh, circumstantial evidence but uh, he really looked worried about it and i thought that's not the kind of practice i want to be in i don't know if that ever crossed your mind uh, mark in your uh, prosecutorial practice
2: no that's surprising to me that that he said that because my experience is that most humans um, convince themselves of their righteous path and that even if it's a shaky case most prosecutors convince themselves 100 percent that the guy's guilty and will never admit otherwise um, so somebody who even got a conviction and is still sort of admits the ambiguities to me sounds like a far more open-minded person than most of us are. So, he is a,
0: he's a defense attorney now. That probably doesn't surprise you in light of that. Um, so the, uh, the, the Ohio Supreme Court, though, is trying to address uh, these issues about uh, uh, conviction integrity and um, post-conviction review. You're a part of that task force, aren't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's going on with it now? I know it's instituted for a couple of years is there anything happening
2: well um so we had public meetings all the oh god they probably started in right right in the middle of the pandemic june of 20 we were supposed to be our first meeting and we couldn't have it. i remember in march they said the pandemic's hit but we'll be able to meet in person by june isn't that funny um, but of course every single meeting for two years were by zoom um, we finished the last meeting probably sometime in the fall of 2021 and the subcommittee that's writing the report is busy writing it and we were supposed to get a draft in january but we haven't gotten a draft yet so i think it's probably more complicated than most of us had envisioned and of course the whole issue was more complicated because it was supposed to be one year but it took us two years and we even had to rush on some issues because there's just so many things you could talk about um and i could talk about some of it because the meetings were public um so yeah. One of
0: the things I've been interested in and again it just goes back to the case I have uh, for uh, Mr. Hatton is is that the um, procedure requires you to go back through the same judge and the same prosecutor. Did the task force address that in any meaningful way?
2: I am trying to remember two years worth of meetings and I do do not think that we I can I, I I can only talk about what's public because um, we have a confidentiality agreement, so things that people could sign on and talk about. And I do not think that we talked about that issue um, at, at much length.
0: Let me switch subjects uh, for a minute uh, with you. So you are the co-founder and the director of the Ohio Innocent Project, and I wanted to uh, to ask you some questions about that. Um, is that part of your responsibilities as a uh, uh, on the faculty of the Cincinnati College of Law or is that an independent thing that you do?
2: Um, Well, it's definitely at UC Law School. I guess the answer is mixed. I was hired to just teach classes and write law review articles and be just a regular professor. Um, But I had become passionate about this issue. So at the beginning, it was sort of like the, you know, the high school social studies teacher that loves lacrosse and the high school doesn't have a lacrosse. So he stays after school with a bunch of kids and tries to get a club going. It's just a side thing. Uh, that's how it was but it just took off and kept growing and it became more and more part of my job um that now it like substitutes i think for one class each semester so it is officially part of my job at this point but um i mean it's after you've been teaching the same classes for 20 years that gets a little bit a little bit easier so the innocence project is my takes up most of my time hey, how many can I, clients
0: can I, can... Um, are a part of the innocent project and maybe you can give us a You know, are they mostly minorities, mostly uh, poor people? Can you give us a breakdown?
2: So since we started, and our 20th anniversary is next year in 2023, um, we've had over 10,000 new cases, so 10,000 inmates, incarcerated people in Ohio write to us. Um, We've gone to court after an investigation and said we think this person's innocent probably less than 50 times out of that 10,000. And that's not to say that we think that only 50 out of those are innocent. It's because the procedures are so difficult to get back into court that, you know, many of them we start the investigation and it looks like the guy's probably guilty and there's overwhelming evidence that we still check it out but it seems like the guy's guilty. That's one category. Another category is you just don't know but there's just not anything to work with. You know, the evidence has been destroyed by the police and the witnesses are dead. Um, there's a third category of, you know, you can actually investigate, but it's just sort of ambiguity, but this, it's so difficult to win these cases, you've got to have a really solid case. So we end up telling the guy no, simply because we know that if we move forward, it's an overwhelming chance of losing and it's going to be 10 years of litigation that, you know, we have limited resources. Um, so only about 50 times have we gone to court saying we think this guy's innocent. So far, we've won 34 of them. We have a lot of um, cases pending, but I mean, some of them take, we've been in court for 15, 20 years. Um, you know, like Nancy Smith, who was just exonerated finally in February out of Lorraine County, Dean Gillespie, who was finally declared wrongfully convicted in December 9th of 2021 after almost 20 years of litigation. Um, so there's various types of categories. I would say the most common denominator is, uh, is poor um, and I would say black men are by far the biggest victims of this, so it's disproportionately black men. Um, so it's, it's often black urban men or rural white people who are uh, unsophisticated with the criminal justice system and don't have the resources to put up a fight.
1: Like uh, Bryan Stevenson says, it's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. No question. Can we swing the conversation a little? I'd like to talk about real specifics because we've been talking so far about ego, just reluctance to believe the system is flawed. But I'd like to talk about things that are probably very difficult for the average person to conceptualize, like wrongful or not wrongful, but false confessions, which comes to mind the Central Park Five. What Mm -hmm. comes to mind is the woman in Texas, Melissa Lucio. Mm -hmm. When I first heard about false confessions, I thought, what? How does that happen? Talk to us about
2: that. Yeah, that is probably the the most conceptually difficult um, cause of wrongful conviction for people to um, wrap their mind around because everybody says, including a recent Supreme Court justice in Ohio said this during oral arguments. Why in the world would somebody confess to a murder they didn't commit? Um, And it's there's multiple things going on. So uh, number one is there there are instances where the intense pressure and the ongoing interrogation for a really long time uh, becomes a form of professional gaslighting. And you're in an interrogation room and you're being gaslit for 12 hours. And what I mean by that is I think the public doesn't really fully recognize that police are allowed to lie to suspects. And so someone's saying, starting off the first two hours, now two hours doesn't sound like very long, but when you've got police yelling in your face for two hours, that's a really long time. And they're saying for the first two hours, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And the cops are telling them, we know you did. We know you did. You're lying. People black out all the time. You probably blacked out. And then the phone rings in the interrogation room and the officer walks over and he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And hangs up. Your DNA just came back at the crime scene. We just found your DNA in our vaginal cavity. That's, that can be a complete lie, right? But people began questioning their own reality um, because it's it's literally professional gaslighting. And so after you continue this for hours and hours, you can have people who are completely innocent, 100% convinced that they must have done this and they've lost their minds. And through time, they will, and it may only take a few hours, end up saying, I guess you're right. Oh my God, I must have done it. Now, one of the things that the innocence movement has has demonstrated is the malleability of human memory. After hours and hours of interrogation and having the cops ask you questions that have they're loaded, they have information in them. And when you're listening to the cop tell you a question, like, I know you stabbed her with a knife in the stomach, you're, you're making a visual image of that. You're hearing it at anybody. This is how the human brain works. You're picturing it. After hours and hours and you're exhausted, it becomes very hard to separate those images that you had in your mind where you were just creating because you were listening from actual memories. And people get very turned upside down and they'll end up confessing to crimes they didn't commit simply because of gaslighting. Um, Another situation happens where their memory doesn't get turned upside down, but it's clear that they become convinced that they have a case against me. They're saying that my DNA matches. They're saying my fingerprints are there. It's obvious I'm not gonna get out of this room unless I tell them what they want me to say. And they're saying that you need to confess and sign this document or you're not leaving this room. And they have faith in the American justice system and they know they're innocent. And they say, you know what? My only option is to sign this. And it's, if I can get out of this room, I can clarify all this, you know, cause they know they're innocent. Like it's going to be, I'll be able to get a lawyer. I'll be able to sort all this out. Um, but what they don't realize is as soon as they sign that document that they did it, it's over with They're absolute toast. Um, what I would advise somebody who has a hard time understanding how this would happen, is to read John Grisham's only nonfiction book, The Innocent Man. Um, and there is about a 10-page passage in there where he goes through and he puts you in the seat of being interrogated and, and falsely and r- confessing in a real case. And after you read that, you can sort of say, okay, I can sort of understand these pressures and how somebody would end up confessing to something they didn't uh, get. But uh, a failure to understand false confessions is simply not understanding the pressure in the interrogation room and how they can literally turn your world upside down and 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 rock your world and sort of uh, shake your rea- sense of reality.
1: And I would assume that the people who are subject subjected to this interrogation just really didn't appreciate that Miranda warning. It just goes in one ear and out the other.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, they think, especially innocent people, right? Innocent people go, oh, I, I didn't do it. So, of course, I'll wave Miranda. Of course, I'll talk. It's experienced criminals who are guilty in this case that know to to say, yeah, I want a lawyer. I'm not talking.
1: Another instance is um, eyewitness testimony. There was a book. Did you ever read the book, Picking Cotton?
2: Yeah, great book. Yeah, it really is. It's, why don't you talk about that? Well, eyewitness identification and misidentification is the, the leading cause of wrongful conviction. And in the National Registry of Exonerations, which is run by University of Michigan Law School, it's got over 3,000 wrongful convictions now in the past like 30 years. And um, they've together served over 27,000 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And um, in in those cases, if you study the the causes and what led to those wrongful convictions, um, one of the leading causes is mistaken eyewitness identification. And so it's just, another thing is just, you know, this has really helped us realize how malleable human memory is. Um, Because there's, you know, a case in Arizona where 10 different people got on the stand and testified, I got a good look at the perpetrator running down the street, I got a good look at his face and good lighting, and I'm 100% positive that's the guy who did it. 10 witnesses and then DNA testing later proves them all wrong and it matches somebody else who doesn't even look that much like the perpetrator, right? And in, in Ohio, our Raymond Tyler case out of Cleveland, we had four different eyewitnesses who said, Yeah, I got a good look, and I'm positive that's the guy who did it. And DNA testing proved it wasn't him. Um, and so, you know, we've come to learn how um, not just malleable, but human memory is really open to suggestion. So instead of thinking of it in terms of like a hard drive, or, you know, I'm, I'm taking in information and my brain is just storing it like a disk. Um, and then when I get called to testify on the stand, I just hit the play button and I spit it back out. In reality, it's what's like more like quicksand, you know, it's shape, changing shape, it's shifting. Or what Elizabeth Loftus, the great psychologist said, it's um, Wikipedia. Because not only are we editing our memories all the time, but other people can edit our memories. And the scary thing is, is that when other people edit our memories, we're not even aware it's happening. It's, you know, Our memories are constantly changing shape underneath us. Um, and so there's like all kinds of studies that are fascinating. Um, you know, they'll take students, and college students, show up on Saturday morning for a personality test and we'll pay a hundred bucks. And so the students are all in this auditorium they're groggy and they're listening to this person lecture about what's about to happen. And somebody walks out of a side door up to the lecturer and steals their purse and then looks at the crowd so everybody can get a good look at their face and then slowly walks out. And then the, the lecturer says, surprise, you're not here for a personality study, you're here for eyewitness identification. And then they they divide them into groups and um, it's just to show how how malleable memory is. And then they show them all a six pack. So like you see on TV with the six photos. But the guy who stole the purse is not in the pictures. OK. And that's simulating what happens in real life when the cops think they have a suspect, but they're actually wrong. The guy they think did it didn't actually do it. And so and this happens all the time in real life. And as what happens in real life is most people in these studies end up picking one of the six, even though the person who committed the crime is not in there they end up picking one that they think looks the most like it. And the process of looking at the different six pictures and making relative judgments back and forth actually modifies the memory. And by the time you settle on it, it's number two, that will often be the face you see when you replay it in your mind. But in any event, one of the things they do is they'll, they'll have one group where the officer After the person says, it's number two, or it's number four, whatever they pick, the officer says, good job, you got it right, that's the guy who did it, all right? And in another group, the officer doesn't say anything, no feedback whatsoever, just says, thank you very much for participating. Then they're taken into a different room and they're interviewed. And um, they're asked some questions like, how good was the lighting? How long did you get to see his face? How confident are you in the selection you made? Okay, now in the group where they were told they got the right answer, they estimate the lighting as way higher than the other group. They estimate the time they got to see the face as way higher. Oh. And they estimate their confidence level is extremely high. It averages out in the 90s. You know, like 90, on average, like 96% positive that I got the right guy. In the other group, the average, the confidence is like in the 60s. Because you got a lot of people say, I'm only 50% sure. You know, I'm only 70% sure. Okay, so they're, they're all asked the same question at the end. Were your answers influenced by the fact that an officer gave you feedback and and told you you picked the right person and they all go absolutely not i was that confident before okay so this is what's happening in real life is that you're manufacturing evidence that doesn't exist because in reality these people are about 60 percent sure and if you give them feedback they're going to go to court and say i'm 100 positive that's the guy i'll never forget that face now when i was a prosecutor i didn't know any of this stuff and i can remember an instance where I'd worked on a case a long time, the agent and I were there with a six pack and the witness came in and she picked out our guy. And of course you want him to pick out your guy because you put all this work into the case and by that point you're convinced he did it. And the agent and I stepped out in the hallway and whooped and hollered and did the touchdown dance and high-fived each other and everything and then collected ourselves and came back in. And she could hear every bit of that, okay? And, And it's the same thing as telling her you you nailed it. You picked the right guy. And what I now understand from research is she might have only been 60 percent sure when she said, I think it's number two. And we jumped out in the hallway and started yelling. Um, but she's going to come to court and say, I'm 100 percent positive. And we've just manufactured false evidence unknowingly.
1: Everything you spoke to speaks once again to the human condition. And Gonzo, I don't know if you're aware of how that book came about, the title Picking Cotton, but it's a book written by Jennifer Thompson, about picking out a gentleman named Ronald Cotton as her rapist. She was dead sure she had the right guy. In fact, she didn't. And now the tour, two of them, at least for some period of time, were touring the U.S. telling their story.
2: Yeah, they're amazing. And, and that that's a good case to illustrate what I was just talking about because she picked out Ronald Cotton. And then once you go through that process of the relative judgment of looking at the pictures and you decide it's number two – When you replay the crime in your mind, that's the face you see. All right. And she talks about that. And at the trial, Ronald Cotton's defense team had developed a pretty good theory that this guy named Bobby Poole was the actual perpetrator because he committed similar rapes in the area the same weekend. And they bring Bobby Poole into the courtroom and she looks at Bobby Poole and says, I've never seen that guy in my life. DNA testing later proves that it wasn't Ronald Cotton, but it was Bobby Poole. And, you know, and she talks about how once I made that selection of Ronald Cotton, even today, if I dream about being raped, I have a nightmare about the crime that occurred against me. I picture Ronald Cotton's face because I had had my memory manipulated.
0: (coughs) Well, so we're going to question the eyewitnesses and the confessions may not be authentic. Uh, as we've been discussing. So do most of your innocent cases turn on some type of DNA evidence that seems to have more credibility, at least today, than any other type of evidence?
2: A lot of them do, but a lot of them, I mean, we, we, we missed, we've talked about eyewitness identification and false confessions, but the other leading problem is bad forensics. Um, And that's another one that people have a hard time wrapping their minds around because we have all these TV shows like CSI with it paint forensics like some modern day miracle, like putting man on the moon. And in reality, they're they're quite unreliable um, and they don't follow the scientific method, they're junk science, a lot of them. And so um, we're seeing a lot of people uh, convicted because of, of junk science. And so we're if we see one of these junk sciences as the basis of their conviction, we'll spend a lot of time investigating and see if, it, if the case unravels. I'll give you just one quick example people might be interested in. Um, you know, the East Cleveland Three, uh, three teenagers wrongfully convicted of murder. They were actually witnesses. They were in their car. It was a a guy was shot down on the sidewalk in broad daylight. Um, and one witness who was way down the street said, you know, I think the shooter came from this SUV and that's the SUV they were driving. Um, so they had one witness. And then the, the main basis of their conviction was what we call gunshot residue. And that is, if you fire a gun, there's blowback. And the, and you know, so materials go on your hands or clothing and it's lead, barium, and antimony, three three um elements that come from the bullet. And the, you know, they tested the East Cleveland three and two of the three of them had trace amounts of that. One of them had it on their hand, one of them had it on their jacket. So it looks really damaging, right? The prosecutor can stand up in closing arguments and say, Not only do we have this witness that said the shooter came from the car, but they had gunshot residue on them. Ladies and gentlemen, how many of you have gunshot residue on you today? <laughs> Right. What a dink that on the exact day of the shooting, two of the three of them had gunshot residue. So after there was a lot of wrongful convictions based on these forensics, people convicted on these forensics, social scientists started doing studies and they started saying, well, let's test these. And just with gunshot residue, somebody said, well, I'm going to get 100 people and I'm going to have them come out of the shower and put on clothing that's straight out of the Amazon box. And so we know it's clean, and I'm going to test them for gunshot residue, and I'm going to confirm that they have none on them anywhere. And then I'm going to handcuff them and put them in a police car and take them down to the police station, and then I'm going to swab them. And guess what? Most of them have gunshot residue on them. Why? Because police cars and police stations are awash with gunshot residue because cops have to do testing every six weeks. Um, They're lousy with gunshot residue. So the East Cleveland 3 had been handcuffed, and put and and put in a police cruiser and taken down to the police station, handcuffed to an interrogation room in the police station for hours before they were swabbed. It's a miracle that they didn't. All three of them didn't have gunshot residue on them. You know, so that's absolutely meaningless evidence. That's just one example. I could go on and on for hours about the problems with many of these others as well. Gonzo, you know what? Uh, did you pick up on what Mark said
1: about junk science? And of course, my first thought is, where's the judge? That's his province. Keeping that kind of evidence out
2: yeah it, it may, might work dalbert and all those gatekeeping functions might work in the civil context but the problem is is that these were created and introduced in past decades number one before dalbert maybe even fry um and they were introduced and accepted and became part of the fabric of the criminal justice system and then it was only discovered in more recent decades that they're problematic um but there's long-standing precedent mm. Um, and so when judges have had the the courage occasionally to try to stand up and say, I think this is junk science, um, it's starting to happen a little bit, um, but they're going against their own court of appeals. Um, and then, you know, of course, the prosecutor runs somebody against them in the election the next time we're talking about elected judges here. Um, so it's uh, it's not an easy thing for these judges to do when it's been accepted in the courtroom for decades.
0: And, you know, going back to the difficulty to convince the trial judge that um, the person was wrongfully convicted, one of the uh, questions the court has to answer is whether the other evidence supports the conviction. So if you uh, question the uh, confession, the court may say, well, I agree with you that the confession was coerced. However, there's eyewitness testimony. Exactly. And if you question the eyewitness testimony, the court may say, "Well, wow, there are forensics. So you got to jump through so many hoops just to get to this issue of whether the jury would have had a different result if the evidence was different. And that's, a, that's almost an insurmountable burden, isn't it, Mark?
2: Yeah, it's very, very difficult. I mean, that's why at the beginning of this talk, I was discussing um, the different categories of cases we see in And there are are many cases that we investigate that we think, God, we just don't know. I mean, this guy really could be innocent, Um, but we have enough experience to know we'll litigate this thing for 10 years and we're not going to win because you can can talk about what the standards are in court and they sound like they're reasonable standards to get a conviction overturn, but the way they're actually applied in the courtroom by the judges are that the evidence has to be very, very strong that the person's innocent or you're not going to get anywhere. And so just having a case where, well, you guys probably innocent, um, it's it's going to be very hard to win that case. Sadly,
0: I think um, I would recommend everybody, uh, Mark, to check out your book, Blind Justice. Uh, It's a real eye opener about the criminal justice system. And Jack and I thank you for your work on behalf of the innocent. And thank you for coming and talking to us this morning.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah. Just a caution to our readers. It's a fascinating book, but it's also depressing. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think it maybe at the end it, it's got some hope, but you know we, we've got to accept the truth if we're going to change it. Well, and
1: change believe it. me, I, I'm delighted you wrote the book. It has to be said, and God bless you for doing it. Thank you. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue, and we hope you join us so that it's not just us, but all of us seeking justice. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend. Until then, so long.